Welcome to this week's sermon from Dale Partridge at Kingsway Bible Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit kingswaybible.org. Praise be to God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. So we all love a rags to riches story. I mean, it's clear. The verdict is in. That is something that humans love. We love the rags to riches stories. We love seeing people go from nothing to something. That's certainly attractive to us. There's something important about remembering maybe who we once were. Uh, you know, I think that when we remember who we were, we have a greater appreciation for where we are. It gives us a little bit of an insight on the distance from where we started and from where we are now. Um, if, you know, let me give you an example. If there was two kings uh, and one of them was the son of a previous king, and one of them was the son of a blacksmith. We want to hear the story of the son who became a king that was born of the son of a blacksmith. We, we like that. We like to see the story go from these, these low moments to these high moments. There's something about that that's attractive to us. This um, underdog, you know, breaking the system and re- receiving something that's maybe out of reach or or beyond their scope, or, or you know, beyond their status. That's something that we appreciate. We love seeing people get what society says maybe that they, they shouldn't deserve or they don't deserve. Now, if you haven't noticed, Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 5, it's, in my opinion, the greatest underdog story in the world. And it's your story. And you really need to recognize this. It's not a story about good people getting what they deserve. It's a story about bad people getting what they don't deserve. It's a very different underdog story, and it's something that I think will be very special to you. Uh, The question I want you to ask yourself is, uh, can you weep when you meditate on the gospel? Can you weep? Can you sit there and think about the gospel in such clarity that it causes tears to your face? Does the love of God captivate you in some great way that you appreciate your salvation? Do you revel in the majesty and the forgiveness of God extended to you? Sadly, many Christians struggle to say yes to those questions. In fact, I would say a lot of people have a very low appreciation for their salvation, uh, and it's because of our view of this particular passage of Scripture. And I, I really want for you and this church to have a greater appreciation for your salvation and for your Savior. We want to have a greater spiritual and emotional and theological comprehension of what really happened when you were redeemed. And I can confidently say that God wants you to experience that same wonder and awe when you think about redemption. That's certainly something that is wanted for you. And so God knows that when we have a more robust understanding of our redemption, that it increases our joy, it increases our appreciation, and um, I would say that it It increases our ability to be obedient. It increases our ability to be content. There is a great benefit to having a clear understanding 
of how you were saved and who you were before you were redeemed. And so he knows that when we clutch this concept of mercy and grace and forgiveness that we see in the gospel, that we're actually going to extend more mercy and grace and forgiveness to others. That is certainly a fruit of comprehension of the gospel. Whenever I see someone like the parable of the debtor holding tight to bitterness and not forgiving somebody, I look at that person and I go, you don't get the gospel. How can you not forgive in light of what Christ has forgiven in you? It's an absolute conundrum. And so the scriptures confront this need for the gospel and its comprehension in the book of Ephesians. And so before I read the text, um, I want to make something just very clear. Um, Those who understand the weight of this passage, and children, I want you to grasp this because this is your story too. Um, And and not just a mental grasp, I I want a heart grasp, an emotional, spiritual reality here. When you grasp this, you will stand in the awe of God's amazing grace. I love that song, by the way. And I love that song because I can see myself in the lyrics. If you can't see yourself in the lyrics, you won't like that song. It just will sound like some American anthem to you. But what this will do in comprehending Ephesians 2, 1 through 5, is that it will give you a deep grasp and a greater appreciation for your salvation and for your Savior. Uh, Randy Alcorn once spoke, and he said, Christ's heart is equally grieved by grace suppression as it is with truth suppression. We will all go up in arms for truth suppression all day, every day. But will we go up in arms about grace suppression? Because often we suppress grace in the sense that we suppress it, that we don't even comprehend how much grace has been given to us. We think that, yeah, there's been grace given to us. But we can't even grasp the degree of grace that has been given to us. And so let's read Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I once heard uh, one of my professors, Dr. Biedebach, at the Master Seminary when I was there, He offered a metaphor for this section of scripture that I think is really helpful and I think will articulate what I'm trying to get across to you. When you're rescued from danger, okay, when you're rescued from danger, the greater the danger you are rescued from will result in the greater appreciation you will have for your rescuer. Does that make sense? Okay, let me give you two stories. So, Rescuer number one, Uh, you're in a burning building and you're on the seventh floor and the flames are to the ceilings. You cannot escape. The doors are blocked. You're surrounded by flames. You're about to be engulfed in the fire. And a fireman 
comes in through the smoke. Uh, you're, you're actually at this point passed out, totally unconscious. Uh, now a f- fireman comes in with a flame retardant suit. He, he comes in, he wraps you up in a blanket. He carries you out and at the base of the stairs, he hands you off, you get out, and then the whole building collapses and kills the fireman. The second story, the second rescuer. You're outside in your backyard and you're trying to get a tan because it's, you know, it's winter. And your neighbor yells from the top deck, hey, uh, just letting you know your back's looking a little red and uh, you may want to put some sunscreen on. And ultimately, he saved you from a sunburn. He saved you from a pretty terrible sunburn. Okay, which two, which of these two rescuers are you going to have more appreciation for? Well, certainly the first one. Certainly the first one. You know, which one are you going to give more respect and more honor and you're going to talk about more often? Which story are you going to tell? See, saved people love talking about their Savior. Now, The sad thing is that most Christians don't talk about their Savior. And I think it's because they don't really view their rescuer and the circumstances of their danger according to what Scripture has said. And so appreciation always increases with cost. Okay, the first could have the cost of your life in that story. Uh, The second would cost just a minor pain. And so we recognize that there is a great cost that was overcome and that we were rescued from in the first example. Now, this is exactly what this passage of Ephesians is about. Paul is offering Christians the context of their saving story. If you want to read about your seventh story or seventh floor burning building moment, it's right here. That's what we're going to read. It could be called this section of scripture, what really happened when you were saved. What were the true circumstances around your salvation? And as humans, again, I said earlier, self-love is blinding. We love to think that we're not actually as bad as we are. And that we're just, you know, you know, we're just struggling a bit. And we just need a little bit of help. You know, um, we just needed help get on the right track. You know, I just needed to get back to church. Um, that's not what this passage says here, by the way. That is not what this passage is teaching us. So this passage isn't saying that you were just sick. This passage is saying that you were dead. Now, if you look at this passage and you look at verse 1, it says, and you were, past tense, dead. Now, in the Greek, that word is nekros. It's the word that you use throughout the scriptures and the Greek language for corpse. Okay, how much, what can a corpse do? I mean, the only thing that a corpse can do, yeah, they can stink, okay? A corpse can stink, that's all it can do, but it certainly cannot respond, it certainly cannot uh, act, it certainly cannot perform, it certainly cannot choose, it certainly cannot do. It's dead. Um, You were not in a spiritual coma, Uh, you were not uh, really sick, but you can reach your hand out and choose Jesus? No, no, no. Uh, we often think that salvation works like this, that uh, you were drowning, you're swimming in the ocean, and God throws out the rescuer uh, 
the raft. All you got to do is grab it. That's how we think about salvation. You got to make the choice to grab that thing. Now, the truth is, is that you are actually dead on the bottom of the floor of the ocean. There's nothing that you could, you're not interested in grabbing that at all because you don't even know. You're dead. And so, which Savior story is more compelling? The one where Jesus jumps down into the ocean floor, grabs you, and resuscitates you through a spiritual resurrection, what we call being born again, raises you back up to life like Lazarus, or you swimming, I need help, I need help. Well, you should grab the Jesus life raft. And he grabs the, no, those are the two stories. And the reality is that the Bible teaches that we are dead on the bottom of the ocean floor. Turn with me real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. It says, but a natural man, what does your ESV say? The natural person. The natural person. Okay, but a natural man, this is somebody who is in the flesh that is not born again yet. It says the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Just think about that for a second. Outside of Christ, spiritually dead, the natural man being separated from God, you cannot understand them because they are what? Spiritually discerned. It means that you cannot have spiritual responses before you're spiritually alive. That makes sense, right? That's chronology. We don't expect a corpse to do live people things until after they're alive. And so we often think that salvation works like this, that repentance and faith equals salvation. That's what we think. But the Bible tells us another story. It's actually born again equals repentance and faith. It's not repentance plus faith equals born again. We don't want to be like Billy Graham who wrote a book called How to Be Born Again. You can't do that. You can't born yourself again. Okay, this is, this is key. What is the analogy or metaphor or illustration that Jesus uses in John chapter 3? We must be born again. And Nicodemus is so confused by that. He's like, do you want me to crawl back in my mother's womb? Because he realizes that he can't be born again. And so think about this for a second. How much involvement did you have in your first birth? None. You had no involvement. And how much involvement do you think you have in your spiritual birth? None. No, God, before the foundation of the world, has decided to come and show mercy upon you by resurrecting you from the dead, creating a born-again experience by in which you are alive and you have ears to hear and eyes to see. For the very first time in your life, you can respond to the gospel and you repent. You are given faith and you're saved. That, that's how redemption works in the scriptures. And that's exactly what we're hearing here in Ephesians chapter 2. And so let's turn back to Ephesians before I preach the whole Bible on that. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So the location of your deadness was in your sins. And what that means is this. Spiritual death is separation. I want you to really grasp this for a second. Spiritual death is separation. It means that you are separated from God. 
And so to be physically dead is the, is the separation of the body from the soul. Spiritual death is to be separated spiritually from God. It's the separation of the soul from God. Now, when you die, if you're not saved, you will be eternally spiritually dead, where you will be eternally spiritually separated from your soul from God. Now, so we are spiritually dead. It says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. It is your trespasses and sins that are the blockade that keeps you separated and dead, spiritually disconnected from God. Now, what happens when we are born again? We're united to Christ and we are made alive. So separation is death and united to God is life. And what does Christ do? Well, he unites us to God through the forgiveness of our sins. This is the whole story of Adam and Eve, right? What happens? Adam and Eve are in the garden and they are in the presence of God. And then what happens when they sin? They're separated from him and they can no longer be in his presence. The only way for us to be in his presence is if we are forgiven and sinless and holy because he is holy. And the only way we become holy is if we're actually born again and redempt or redeemed through the blood of Christ. You can see this is the whole narrative of scripture. And so it goes on, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Okay, people before Christ, I don't care if you were two, 10, or 40. Before Christ, this is a description of you, you in which you formerly walked. You were walking in your sins according to the course of the world, not according to Christ, but according to the course of the world, according to Satan, the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that is now at work in those who are lost, the sons of disobedience. That's how you walked. You should be able to look back at your own spiritual biography and say, was that me? Because too often, too often we think, I was actually a pretty good kid. Well, compared to what? Yeah, if you want to compare yourself to the felon, you're a great kid. But when you compare yourself to God's law, you're a wicked sinner deserving of eternal death. At four, at seven, at 12, you have to compare yourself not to other men or women or other children. You compare yourself to the law of God by which you cannot keep. Let's go to Romans 3 real quick. We just read that. There's some language here that's very important that you need to deal with as a Christian. It says, there is none righteous, not even one. Okay, that's just a clear statement, right? None of us are righteous. Outside of coming to Christ and repenting for your sins and having faith, trusting on the righteousness of Christ, not you, not that you're good, not your obedience, but the perfect obedience of Christ. Outside of that, you're not righteous. I have no righteousness of my own. I need an alien righteousness to make me righteous. Before I stand before the throne, I need that righteousness of Christ through faith. There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one or none who understands. Full stop. You think that you were persuaded to Jesus? I promise you, you were not. You were absolutely dead. God came in and enlightened your heart 
so that you could see for the very first time, so that you could hear for the very first time. This is why Jesus was always saying, for those who have ears to hear, let him hear. For those who have eyes to see, let him see. It says, there is no one who seeks for God. But what about the seeker-friendly movement? What about the seeker-sensitive churches? It says, no. Do you know the idea of a sheep seeking his shepherd is such a dumb idea? Sheep don't seek the, the, the shepherd. The shepherd seeks the sheep. But for some reason, we just love the American narrative of the gospel that we just need to go and be persuaded to Jesus. And that's why we have fog machines and smoke machines. And, you know, we get the lion from the local zoo to come on stage and to be, you know, the big scene. Because we want to persuade people instead of just preaching the gospel. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If we would just preach the gospel, that's the midwife to the new birth. That's how faith comes upon a person not by persuasion of intellectual ideas. That's why I was so frustrated around Ravi Zacharias's ministry and the classical apologetics ministry. It ends in a very fruitless result. It's arguments around intellectualism, but it doesn't get to the core of the gospel. It says, all have turned aside. They've become use- useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I think about when the gentleman came up to Jesus and says, hey, good teacher. And he goes, uh, who are you calling good? There's no one good but God. Now we know that Christ is good because he's God of the flesh, but he's alluding to the reality that there is no one that's good. We're not good people. You know, people always say that very dumb phrase, uh, why do bad things always happen to good people? And I go, no, <laughs> the only time that a bad thing ever happened to a good person is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Outside of that, it's only bad things happening to bad people. Okay, we are all bad people where bad things happen. And by God's grace, he has redeemed some. He has redeemed some. So when you look at Ephesians 2, and it says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You weren't following your own plan and following your own dreams living a wonderful life that was, you know, needed Jesus, but I had a pretty good life before Christ. No, you were following everything that is wrong with the world. You were like a corpse laying down in your own feces and vomit, going down a black waterfall to death into the heart of a volcano. That's essentially what was happening. That is what Christ redeemed you from. Now, if you don't see, remember, if you don't think that your rescue the danger that you were in was that extreme, you will not appreciate your rescuer. But if you want to have a greater appreciation for your savior, you must absolutely see who you once were. You were absolutely hopeless and helpless outside of Christ. That was your spiritual identity. You weren't a good person. You were a son or daughter of Satan. God Jesus actually calls people that. Do you know what it means to say a spawn of Satan? It's saying that you are children of Satan. He actually calls them that later. You know, this is who we are outside of Christ. We weren't righteous. We weren't, we were a child of God's wrath. We weren't rescued from the sunburn. We were rescued from the absolute burning building. Uh, Dr. Sam Storms commented, he said, Grace has meaning 
only when men are seen as fallen, unworthy of salvation, and liable to eternal wrath. It is precisely because today, it is precisely because people today have lost sight of the depths of human depravity that they think so little of divine grace. What makes Paul's declaration that we are saved by grace so significant is his earlier declaration that we were dead in trespasses and sins, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts, and were by nature children of divine wrath, end quote. And so this is essentially how we need to view our salvation story. Verse three, it says, among them, we too all formally lived, all of you, every one of you, even my son Deacon, who's three months old, is living according to that reality, unless, you know, the Lord maybe regenerated him in his, in his mother's womb like he did with John the Baptist, but hey. Um, but the truth is, this is the identity of all those who are outside of Christ. And at some point, all of us, because we are born of Adam, were at some point outside of Christ. And it says, among them we all too formally lived in the lusts of our flesh. Now, we can see any toddler living in the lusts of their flesh. It's very easy to see that. We don't need to teach them to sin. They want to do what they want to do. And whether that is looked at in a two-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 22-year-old that doesn't know Christ, you can see that person outside of Christ living in the lusts of their flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh, as it says, and of the mind. It's not just a works thing and your physical reality. You're actually thinking these things. You're actually loving these things. And, and that's the thing. We think that if Jesus gave us a choice to come to him, that we would choose him. We would not choose him. That's what you have to see, is that in, unless Christ changes your affection through the new birth, you won't choose Christ. You're not interested in Christ. Your highest desire, which we call human free will, you don't have a free will. You have a will. It's never free. Okay, it's enslaved to sin because you're spiritually dead. So your highest desire is sin. And if someone came up to you without a regenerate heart, without eyes to see the gospel and says, would you want to give up all of your lust and all of your desires and relinquish the authority of your life to Jesus? Outside of Christ's absolute regenerating work, you're going to say, no, I'm not interested. And if you've ever preached the gospel in public, you know that's true. Because I have, and I've told people, and they spit at me. They scoff at me. They gnash their teeth at me. Like you, you have to see that that is also you. That's also you. Is that Christ came and did a divine work in your heart without your permission. He didn't ask Lazarus if he could raise him from the dead. He just did it. And that is an image of what happens to us when we are made alive in Christ. It says, among them we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest, or the rest of mankind, your translation might say. That was your destination. You need to see that Christ came to redeem you. And you might think about, well, why did Christ redeem me? And why doesn't he redeem everyone? 
sometimes people struggle with the idea of thinking that there's some sort of injustice with God because he only redeems some. And the truth is that there's no injustice with God. There's just justice and mercy. Every one of us deserves hell. Every one of us. Every one of us deserves cancer. Every one of us deserves torture. Every one of us deserves to die today. That's what we deserve. We're dust and dirt that disobeys God. That's what we are. So when God determines by his own wisdom that he's going to extend mercy to some and leave the rest to justice, there's no injustice there. There's just justice and mercy. And God has decided to show mercy to you. Like if you stood before God and he said, why are you here? You would say, well, it's because I trusted it in your son Jesus and the atoning blood of his sacrifice and that by faith he's given me his righteousness. And you'd say, amen. But why is your friend John not here? Because he's heard the gospel. Well, because he didn't believe and I did. Well, why didn't he believe and you did? You find yourself in a conundrum here. You are either going to boast or say nothing. Because if any response to that question is, well, because I was smarter, because I was more spiritually aware, because I was more sensitive to the reality of my sin. No matter what, you get yourself into a boast. And what does Ephesians 2 later say in verses 7 and 8? It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you believe that you're the catalyst of your salvation, there's a little bit of back padding. I chose and John didn't. Dude's an idiot and I'm not. That's there if you think that. The real answer when God says, why are you here? Is because it pleased you to save me. I don't know why I'm here. I shouldn't be here. But it pleased you to save me. Before the foundation of the world, you knew me. And you chose to extend your grace to me, not by any works that I've done, but by works that you've done. That needs to hit at the heart. And that's exactly what we see at verse 4. Some people have said these are the two greatest words in the entire Bible because it gives you the absolute biography, the absolute biography of your spiritual life prior to Christ. And it says, but God. It's a contrast clause. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Who made you alive? Not you. You didn't born yourself again. God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. How much grace is it if you chose it? That's not grace. If you could choose it, that doesn't make any sense. You know, it was, uh, I think Jonathan Edwards says, uh, free will has sent many to hell, but not one to heaven. You have to see that God intervened in your life without your permission. And maybe it's your child, and maybe it's because God just had you to be born into a particular family with particular parents who would proclaim the gospel to you week in and week out that we become as parents the means to save those children. It's God saving them, but we are the means. 
So why can we as parents, of Christian parents, redeem, or redeemed parents, have confidence that our children are going to be saved? Well, it's because they've been put in my house. It's pretty evident that God intends to save my kids if he puts them in my house. It doesn't mean that every one of my kids are absolutely going to be saved, but it's a pretty good marker that we should be confident that our children are to be saved. That's how covenantal thinking works. God doesn't just save random individuals. He saves family lines, especially when we're faithful. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What I want you guys to see is that we all have the same testimony. Sure, we have varying degrees of stories, but at the core, we all have the same testimony. We were all born dead in Adam, absolutely loving sin, not good, unrighteous, hating God, and God changed me. And I've seen too many people that are kids that were raised in a Christian home their whole life, and they look at these people that were like drug addicts, and they think that their redemptive testimony is better than theirs. They're like, man, I wish I had a testimony like yours. Yours is so compelling. Because, you know, you, you had, you, you know, you had this giant rags to riches story. And you think that it's more compelling than your story that you were actually raised in a Christian home. And you were just loving God from as early as you can remember. And you just feel like your testimony is not that powerful. You have the same testimony. You guys were all sinners. It might have happened by God's grace that you were raised in a home that covered a multitude of sins. It's a massive blessing to be raised in a Christian home. We should never diminish that. But we have the same testimony. The murderer and the rapist and the Pharisee and the little old lady and the you know, sweet 10-year-old little girl and, you know, Mother Teresa and, and all of them, they're the same. They're all the same. Whatever position you're in, we have the same testimony. And so I want you guys to understand this. When you come to an understanding of your redemptive story, the natural biblical response should be gratitude. Gratitude is the reason and fuel that we obey as Christians. We don't obey because we think that God will disown us. That's legalism, right? We think that our obedience actually keeps us in God's good grace. No, the obedience of Christ keeps us in God's good grace. We can please God with obedience, but God loves us even if we disobey because we're in Christ. And so when we look up on our salvation and we realize that we cannot be lost because we're resting not on our works, but we're resting on the works of Christ, we can actually be grateful for our salvation, that God did this great work, and we can obey from the motive, not of fear that we'll lose something, but out of love and gratitude for what has been done. That is essential to the Christian life. That is essential and so my hope for you today is that you walk away having a greater understanding for your salvation and your Savior, and that saved people love talking about their Savior. 
you should talk about your rescuer. And it's sad that people, if they were rescued from that building, would probably write a book. Yet every one of us have that same story and very few of us talk about it. And so spend time reflecting upon the gospel this week on what has actually been accomplished and done for you, that we might obey, that we might have joy and gratitude and greater appreciation for our salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the blessing of redemption. Lord, for the mercy and grace extended to us. Lord, that we are not deserving of this underdog story. Lord, that we really do have a rags-to-riches reality. Lord, we ask that you would help show it to each of us, to the children, to the adults. Lord, to anybody that needs to come to Christ, Father, we pray, Lord, that we would see these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. For more information about Pastor Dale Partridge or Kingsway Bible Church, visit kingswaybible.org.